you're going to want a Bible this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, go on and open up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is when we continue our series in worship. If you need a Bible, you have some people walking around, slip up a hand, they'll put a Bible in your hand so you can follow along uh, with us. And as you're finding your way there, uh, just a, a couple things. One, um, obviously we're back here in the student space. Uh, I do appreciate your flexibility. Um, and uh, we do, unfortunately, because of the extent of the amount of cleaning they're having to do from our little fire a couple weeks ago in our normal auditorium, uh, the, the real issue is the smoke. Um, they're actually having to take out all of the insulation in the ceiling and put it back in. So, but praise the Lord for insurance. Amen. And uh, so, but because of that, there's probably going to be one more Sunday that we'll gather back in here next week. We just want to give you a heads up on that. But you know what? We'll worship God wherever we need to go, right? And so, uh, and, uh, and so with that, also next week is, is a really significant time for us as a church. You know, we begin the year every year in worship and prayer, fasting. And then we come together at, at, in January around this thing we call Journey. And Journey is this five-week experience that the whole church is invited into. From our littles all the way to our senior adults, everything stops for this five weeks to, to focus in on one topic together, to go deep together. And this year, as we prayed into what, what is God stirring up in us, it felt like the invitation was, uh, was to realign our lives with God's rhythms of grace. And I mean, how many of you feel like your life is out of alignment? Exhausted, overworked, tired, busy, overwhelmed. I mean, those words describe anyone else in the room. And so, and, and God did not intend for us. And uh, God designed us to live into these rhythms, these life-giving rhythms in our day, our week, in our, in our seasons, in our year. And so, uh, and so we're going to lean into that for, for a few weeks and just see how God might uh, open up our hearts and move us into a new place, both individually and as a community, as, uh, as we reset our, our days, our weeks around his rhythms, his life-giving breath in our souls. And so... I'm excited to see what God does uh, during that time. The way it kind of flows, real simple, uh, obviously Sunday morning we'll come and worship and we'll, we'll dig into the teaching together. Um, but then that teaching is really meant to, to move you forward into deeper conversation in small groups. And so we, we talked about this last week, that the, the invitation challenge for Journey is 100% participation. Uh, we want everyone to just commit for the five weeks to join a Journey group, a small group. Uh, a, a small conversation group uh, around that topic that we'll be uh, talking about on Sunday morning. Um, and so you can do that. Uh, you can join that online. Uh, find a group there. You can, in the lobby, sign up or uh, connect with us, and we'll, we'll help you get connected. Or you may say, hey, you know what? I got some friends, some neighbors, or just my family. We're going to do this journey together. And if that's you that you're wanting to host in your own home or with just your family, please still let us know because we want to help resource and encourage you uh, for those five weeks with what you would need as a host or as a leader. Um, and so no matter what, whether you're hosting or just joining a group, uh, that begins next week. But the real meat and potatoes of Journey, um, yes, the teaching is important. Uh, that, that deeper conversation in small groups is critical. But the real heart of it is that every week you'll be led into some, uh, into some application. Some, some practice uh, to begin to experiment with uh, in your own life, in your own family. 
uh, as we learn together to live in to God's life-giving rhythms of grace. And so I hope you'll join with us uh, as we begin that five-week journey next Sunday. Cool? Cool. Uh, lots of enthusiasm in the room. I'm, I'm hoping that's more about the, the, the temperature outside, not the temperature in your soul. But uh, now, uh, so this weekend uh, it is uh, a, a significant weekend for us. Not just, it was planted out of a church, as a church family um, every year. So if you don't know, Grace in Monroe was planted out of a church called Grace Snellville in Snellville, and uh, and is a part of a family of churches. There's 11 Grace churches. Uh, uh, mostly in the Georgia area, three, one in Missouri, one in Washington, D.C., one in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and uh, every year we come together uh, for one weekend with the leaders of all those different campuses for just a time of worship and encouragement. But the significance of this year was that it's, uh, it's actually Grace's 40th anniversary. Uh, Grace was planted 40 years ago. And, uh, and so it was just a really sweet time to come together and celebrate. But not just to celebrate simply what God has done for the last 40 years, uh, but to lean into, okay, God, what are you going to do next? What are the next 40 years? How are the next 40 years even greater than the first 40? And I, and I, I say that because, I mean, as important as that is as a church, that's also important in our own lives. That we look back and remember the faithfulness of God in the hard times and in the high times. In the tragedies and in the celebration, God's faithfulness in remembrance of the past, but we're not invited to remember the past as often as the Bible tells us to remember not to live in the past or to long for the past, but to be propelled into the future. That the, the, the faithfulness of God in your story is about God preparing you to continue to live into his faithfulness in, the, in front of you. To worship God, to remember our story, but also to an expectation step into this next season. And uh, as part of that, you know, we, we, as we were praying about what is, uh, what is God doing, stirring in the churches, it felt like God was really calling us, uh, reminding us about how we are called to, uh, to embody the gospel as witnesses of Jesus in our everyday ordinary lives. And, and so, we, uh, so we really, as we were praying about that idea that, that we're all called to be this gospel presence, this gospel witness, um, wherever we find ourselves. Uh, there is, there's really just a, one, a handful of names, but one especially that came to mind is like, um, man, there's, there's somebody that just embodies that to me, uh, that heart for just being a gospel witness and presence um, wherever God sends them. Uh, the problem is that they live on the other side of the ocean. And I was like, man, uh, I was like, you know, um, this guy, Yusuf, he's the regional director for Young Life in the Middle East. Many of you have had the chance to meet him in the past. And, and I was like, okay, maybe, this would be awesome. Maybe we could get Yusuf just to, to film like a little video, like, hi, Grace, you know, greetings from the Middle East, whatever. Um, and so reaching out, come to find out that Yusuf and his family were going to be in this, the United States already because Young Life was having their international conference at this exact same time. So he changed his flights, and uh, we are incredibly privileged to have Yusuf, his wife, Nazreen, and their family here with us this morning. And so um, we're going to get the chance to hear from Yusuf here in just a minute. Uh, many of you have signed up to stay uh, after church. We're going to have a little lunch uh, for Q&A to get deeper into some stuff. 
Um, and, uh, but before we get there, I kind of want to set the stage uh, to, for, for Yusuf in this conversation. Continuing in this, uh, this exploration of what it means to be worshipers. And, uh, and we started a couple weeks ago in the series on worship, uh, that, that worship really has nothing to do with us at its core. That worship is simply our right response to the reality of God. That when we get a glimpse of who he is and all of his power and glory and awe and wonder, the creator of the universe that at a world brought the cosmos into existence, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, the God of galaxies, that if we just get a glimpse to declare his worth and his value. But not just is, is he a God that's out here, this, this massive cosmic king who created the world like a clock and wound it up and then set it on a shelf to leave it alone. But he's a God not just far, but a God who is near, deeply personal and present, faithful and loving and kind gracious and merciful, pursuing and persistent, a good shepherd, a close friend, a true father, a bringer of peace and hope by his presence. And when we encounter the God who comes near, the only right response is worship. Now, as much as God deserves our worship, and even as much as God delights in the worship of his people, the reality is that God doesn't need our worship. God is God. And so last week we talked about, though, that, that God doesn't need our worship, but we need to worship God. Amen? And so we looked at how worship is, is, uh, is, is first and foremost, as we talked about already, uh, is this uh, an invitation to remember, to remember who God is and what he has done, his faithfulness for us and who we are in him. And so in worship, we're invited not just to remember, but we're, it's, worship is, a, is an invitation to realign our lives in his ways, to reset our hearts and our minds. We talk about these rhythms of grace, that in worship we are realigned more into the man or the uh, is an invitation into restoration. The Psalms that say, I was in this, the miry pit and you pulled me out. Oh Lord, restore to me the, the joy of my salvation. The restoration of our souls in a dark and weary world. And lastly, we said that worship, yes, it's an invitation to remember, to, to, to be realigned and to, uh, to be restored, but also worship is an act of resistance. That it is standing up in the face of our enemy whose only mission is to steal and kill and destroy. In the midst of a broken and fallen, desperate and dark world, to stand up and say, yes, but there is a God who is true, and in the end, he wins. So worship as an act of resistance. And so this morning, briefly, I, I want to just go a little bit deeper into that idea that, yes, worship is resistance. But to see worship as mission and worship as an act of warfare. And so we started here in Acts chapter 2. 
this beautiful moment in history. 2,000 years ago when, when Jesus, God in the flesh, walked our dusty and desperate world in the form of humanity, fully human and fully God. Perfect love who was ultimately crucified by those in power, dying the death that we, all of humanity, deserve in order that we, all of humanity, could be forgiven and set free in his name. And then three days later, we know the story that living God, he defeated sin and death on the cross and, and rose from the dead in resurrection power. And, uh, and in that resurrection, he came alongside of those who were following him, trying to understand what God was doing in the world and, and teaching them his ways and looking back on all the scripture and saying, all of this that has happened has been what the prophets have been promising for generations. It's what all of the law was pointing to. All of history was coming to was what God was doing in this moment. And they, they, he's with them for about 50 days, and then he takes them up on this hillside outside of Jerusalem, and he, and he says, I'm returning to the Father, ascending into heaven, where he was to take his rightful place, his right authority. And, and, but he's promised them. He's like, I, I'm, I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans, and I'm going to give you the, um, the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, my very presence and power in you. And, and so he tells them, hey, I, I'm going But you, go back to Jerusalem and wait to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses. My eyewitnesses, my mouthpieces, my representatives. Not just here in Jerusalem, but in Judea, the surrounding territory. But not just in Judea, in, in Samaria. In the, in the other place, the different place. But not even just Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. And so now we stand here 2,000 years later and worship to the disciples back then, Georgia in 2024. Because God's promise to the disciples back then has come true. That we stand as witnesses. Filled by the Spirit. At the ends of the world. And so they go back into Jerusalem, waiting for this gift, this promise of the Holy Spirit to come about. And they, they make their way into this upper room area. And, uh, and we don't know exactly what they were doing there during that time that they're waiting. But, but what we know is, uh, we can presume from what we find every other time that they gather together in a room, is uh, that they were definitely try and trying to process what he had done and what he was doing. And they were worshiping. And as they're worshiping and praising and praying to God, waiting for the Spirit, we get Acts chapter 2 where it says that the day of Pentecost arrived and they were all together in this one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. The presence of God, the breath of God breathing his power into the room and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And then divided tongues, like, like fire, the consuming 
presence and power of God appeared to them and came to rest on each one of them. Not just one big bonfire burning in the middle of the room, but God's presence and power descending on them, filling each and every one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there at the time, dwelling or gathering in Jerusalem were Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered, awestruck. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans just local fishermen? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors even from Rome, in our own tongues, our language. So when the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit descended in power, the very presence of God resting on them, rushing into them like a consuming fire, what was their response? Was it to be like, man, this is amazing. We need to set up shop. Throw up some billboards. We're going to have a 48-hour rally. This is going to be awesome. We're going to just soak in this presence and just stay here. Sort of like Peter. You know, when uh, Peter took uh, him and James and John up, I mean, sorry, Jesus took them, those three guys up on the mountain with them and said it was transfigured before them. They saw a glimpse of the, the true glory of Jesus. And Peter's response is, this is awesome. Hey, listen, Jesus, I got a great idea. Let's build some tents and just stay here. And when he says that, this voice comes from heaven and it says, this is my son whom I love. And listen, praise, listen to him. And what, and then the cloud disappears. They see Jesus back as he is in his human form. And what's the first thing Jesus says to them? Not let's stay up here on the mountain. But let's go back down into the valley the valley of everyday ordinary life. And the first thing they encounter having this God experience that rocked their world is an angry, scared dad whose son is trying to destroy himself and a confused, bewildered crowd who doesn't get what God is doing and a bunch of disciples who are frustrated and angry because they can't get God to do the things they think God should do. In other words, they have this mountaintop experience that isn't meant for them to stay on the mountain in greater experiences of ecstasy and glory, but instead to take them back down into the brokenness of everyday ordinary life. And that is just as true for us as it was for them. That we have these moments of God in worship. And so we come back to Acts 2. And, and they have this experience of the, the first experience of the Spirit descending and filling the power, presence of God. And what is the first thing they do? Rush out into the street and start declaring the goodness, the gospel of Jesus. In every language, in miraculous words. 
And in the same way, as we gather together, yes, it is, it is sweet that we come together and declare God's goodness and his glory. We remember who he is and who we are, and we praise him, and we lay our struggles at his feet, and we allow him to restore the broken places in our lives and to encourage the places that we are weak and weary. But in that encounter, worship has always been intended to move us forward on mission. We see this a few chapters later, Acts 16, uh, Paul um, has been sent with his sort of band of brothers up to go plant a church, actually the very first church planted in Europe, in Philipp, a, a city called Philippi. And, uh, and while they're there, um, God does this miracle through them where there's this little uh, a servant girl who has a demonic spirit, but there are some men that have been trafficking her, trafficking her to make money off of this demonic spirit that's inside of her. And so they, they, they speak a word and set her free from this uh, bondage and oppression. And the response to those, hey, you know what, these guys lost their money source, is uh, to go complain to the authorities and to say, hey, you know what, these guys are stirring up trouble, we need to get rid of them. So they come in, the authorities, they grab Paul and Silas. After doing this miraculous work of God, they don't get high five for it, they get thrown in prison. And as they're in prison, it says, their feet shackled, as they're, they're sitting in this dark Roman uh, dungeon. What does it say that they're doing? Acts 16. Complaining. Telling God, where are you? We're trying to do good things for you, and this is the thanks we get. And why they're right and they're wrong. No. It says that they're singing and praising God. Declaring his glory. And as they sing, it says the other prisoners are listening in. And that praise, it goes up to heaven. And an earthquake begins under their feet. And shakes the very foundation of the prison where they're held in bondage. And as their praise goes to heaven and God begins to shake the earth, it says that the doors of the prison fly open and their shackles fall off and they're set free. Now, it would be easy in that moment for Paul and Silas to think God was faithful. He has opened a door of deliverance that we can be free. But that's not what God was doing. In fact, the jailer, it says, comes rushing in in a panic, seeing that, that the doors are open and, and, uh, and, and the, the chains are off the walls and, and thinking that all the prisoners have escaped. He's getting ready to, to fall on his sword uh, to end his life instead of facing the punishment that he's going to get from his general in charge for failing in his duties. And so just as he's about to fall on the sword, Paul cries out and says, stop, we're still here. It says that jailer comes rushing and falls at their feet and says, what must I do to be saved? They respond, jailer, believe in the name of Jesus. And that very night, that jailer, their enemy, the one who had uh, enacted violence and bondage upon them, is baptized in the name of Jesus and belongs to the family of faith. So in other words, their worship didn't just open up a door for their deliverance. Their worship opened a door that their enemy could be saved. How would that change our perspective? 
If when we come together and we get a glimpse of God moving in this place, moving in our like us, not just the people who are not like us, but the people who don't like us, our enemies, those who curse us, who hate us, who want to, to act violence upon us, would want to shut us down. And our response is to declare the goodness of God that they might be saved. Now, I say that because I've told you that as a pastor, the weight I feel going into this year, knowing this is an election year, is that in times past, we have watched years like this absolutely divide our country and divide our churches, where families can't even sit at the same Thanksgiving table because of their politics and disagreements. And yet God is calling us to be a different kind of people, a people that recognize that our primary citizenship is in heaven, and the kingdom we belong to is the kingdom of God that reigns over every kingdom of man. And our primary allegiance is to Jesus Christ, not to any party or creed here on earth. And that we are to be defined as people of his way, who he says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and let your worship open doors that your enemies can be set free. That's the God that we worship. final story in this movement of, of worship and what it means to be a community of worshipers, I think of Jesus as he uh, it says that he finds himself on a hot day um, that he goes uh, and sits at Jacob's well in the middle of Samaria in this place called Shechem between uh, these two mountains, mountains of blessing and cursing. And, J and Jesus goes and he and he sits at this well, and there's a Samaritan woman there, and, uh, and she, and he asked her, like, can you get me a drink? Now, she's shocked because there is no reason that Jesus, a Jewish man, should ever be speaking to her as a Samaritan woman. I mean, she represents Samaritan. I mean, it would be, of Samaria, it would be presumed that, that, you know, not only is she, like, evil, but she's probably filled with a demonic spirit and about to go to hell. You stay away from those people. And not just she's a Samaritan, but she's a woman. And in that culture, women were lesser. They, they, you shut them down. They, they, they had no place. They were temptresses that you just put up with. You, try, you shut them down. They had babies, and you, and you set them over there. So you don't talk to women and you definitely don't talk to Samaritan women, and yet here is Jesus sitting on the edge of this well and leaning into this woman who actually, by the way, is there in the middle of the day when she shouldn't be because you can presume, based on her history and her past, she doesn't actually want to be around her own community. So she's carrying all the shame of her own life in a place that's considered a place of shame. And here comes Jesus. And says, woman, will you pour me a drink of water? And she's like, whoa, 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 wait. What are you, a Jewish man, asking me, a Samaritan woman, for, for water? And, and Jesus says, you know what? If you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink of water, you would ask him. And he would give you a living spring of water flowing from your soul. Now, she's pretty smart and clues in that Jesus uh, is, you know, something special. And he goes, I can tell you're a prophet. 
And she said, uh, she gets into this little religious debate, and she said, you know, my, my people say that you're supposed to worship God on this mountain, and, and your people say that we're supposed to worship God in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, nah, let me tell you, there's a time coming when all people, all nations, together, in spirit and in truth. That in other words, God is bringing together a people from all peoples. He's crossing all the barriers and all the boundaries and all the division and all the hatred and all the violence that the true God could be lifted up and the spirit of God could be sent down. That one day, that picture in Revelation where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what it means to worship to be formed into a people beyond what this world would call us.